Are you ready for podcast number 18? I have certainly enjoyed these series of podcasts explaining to you the mind of Paul, which was a very Hebraic mind. He was taught at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest sages of all time. And I think over the centuries, actually, Christians have not really understood Paul. They've not viewed him as that deeply Hebraic scholar, possibly because Christian tradition has separated Judaism from Christianity, separated the Hebrew Scriptures from the New Testament, which may help explain the problem. In this podcast, we will examine Paul's allegorically speaking in Galatians 4.24, and I will suggest that the following passage after he says he's speaking allegorically, is not a classical Greek allegory, which many theologians have suggested, nor is it a manner of interpretation known as typology, which even more theologians have suggested. Instead, we will examine another ancient allegorical technique that employs two literary devices to startle the reader and act as markers leading to the Hebrew Scriptures, where we will discover deeper meaning about the nature of the inheritance. Does this sound familiar? As we've worked with Paul, he uses these startling techniques, and he doesn't come out and tell us what he's saying they're markers that get us to think. That's different from the Greek way. The Greek way is that the professor stands up at a, at a lectern and lectures to the people and they take notes and then they do a test. Paul has been steadily appealing to the Galatians, both emotionally with artistic midrash and rationally through legal midrash. Suddenly, he interrupts with a startling diversion. This is allegorically speaking, he announces. After continuous Hebraic reasoning and logic, the Gentile believers in Galatia must have been relieved to hear that Paul was now turning to a method of persuasion that would have been more familiar to them, because there was a, a Greek allegory. You know the story of the tortoise and the hare? That's an allegory, where the, the tortoise plods along slowly. The hare is so convinced that he's going to win the race, that he keeps stopping, chatting, and so forth, and the tortoise is the one who wins. So Greek allegory is a fictitious narrative, like the tortoise and the hare, with a moral message. But much to the surprise of the Galatians, even when Paul turns to an allegory, he continues to startle his readers, and that doesn't sound like Greek allegory at all. Paul's allegorical narrative is not fictitious, like the allegory of the tortoise and the hare. Instead, Paul starts by retelling stories from the Torah. Yet we will see that the allegorical retelling is filled with contradictions, meaningless metaphors, and seemingly disconnected elements. This is quite surprising, and it's supposed to be startling and surprising. What is Paul doing, and what is he trying to tell us? I have concluded that Paul used an ancient style of presenting an allegorical argument. Although recent research has considered this ancient Hebraic allegorical technique, scholars have not generally recognized the specific literary devices that craft this kind of allegory. So, 
I'm out in new territory with my suggestions. I have, by the way, published an article in an academic journal, and I've written the book on um, Paul's Midrash in Galatians. But still, it takes time for any new suggestion to take hold, which I think is what is happening now. They have not recognized the specific literary devices that craft this kind of Hebraic allegory, nor have they acknowledged that Paul may have been using this allegorical device. From my research, I really believe that Paul is using two literary devices that act as markers, leading the reader to deeper aspects of meaning in the Hebrew Scriptures, which means that he's not going to tell us what he means. He's going to give us the clues, and we have to go to the Hebrew Scriptures, roll up our sleeves to find them. That's just so typical of the the Hebrew Scriptures. I have identified these same two markers in the work of two of Paul's contemporaries, Philo and Quintilian, and have further noted a reference in the Jewish work of the Makilta that mentions early rabbinic teachers who interpreted the law allegorically. So I'm not just out on a limb here. I have found support that this ancient Hebraic method of allegory that uses these startling markers and leads you to the Hebrew scriptures, this ancient method was being used by Philo, by Quintilian, and we can see that the early rabbinic teachers were using this ancient allegorical device. So by recognizing this allegorical technique of startling, I have encouraged a reconsideration of the traditional interpretations of Galatians 4.21-5.1, which view the passage as typology or Greek rhetoric. Paul expected his readers to search the Hebrew Scriptures for deeper aspects of meaning that the startling markers suggest. I now want to examine the two allegorical devices that are characteristic of rabbinic exegesis. The first is a strange metaphor. A metaphor is one thing like another that has no relationship, okay? So if we say God is like light, we can understand that. But if we say God is a fortress, there's no relationship in Scripture. We don't understand what it is. And Paul is using not just a metaphor, but strange metaphors. And these metaphors will substitute one word or concept for another with just absolutely no apparent meaning. There's no connection in the Hebrew Scriptures to give us any meaning of of the metaphor. The second literary device is an abuse of language that actually contradicts the Abraham and Exodus narratives. Paul will intertwine these two devices, so the task of distinguishing between them really is a delicate one. Let's look at the first literary device, which we will find in Galatians 4.24-26, to which is a metaphor with no apparent meaning. Paul declares, the women are two covenants, which follows his declaration, this is allegorically speaking. Now, the women are Hagar, the slave wife of Abraham, and Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Substituting one word for another in this way is an allegorical device for directing the reader to a deeper aspect of understanding than the most obvious meaning of the words conveys. So we have the women are two covenants. There's nothing 
in Scripture can help us understand what that means. The puzzling characteristic of this strange metaphor is its failure to use any recognized symbols. So the meaning is unclear and even somewhat startling. If Paul's declaration that the women are two covenants is an allegorical device, which it is, then verses 24 to 26 contain a total of five of these startling metaphors. And the first one, of course, is Hagar and Sarah are two covenants. The second, Hagar is the Sinai covenant. That makes no sense at all. Hagar is the slave wife of Abraham. She can't be the Sinai covenant. That just makes no sense. Sarah is implied, and she is an unnamed covenant. And there's nothing in Scripture that connects Sarah with a covenant. The fourth one is that Hagar, Sinai covenant, is the present city of Jerusalem. It just doesn't make any sense. How do you connect Hagar with the Sinai covenant and make it the present city of Jerusalem? Because Hagar is a slave. And then finally, our mother, who is Sarah, and she's identified with a new covenant, is Jerusalem that is above in heaven. This whole thing is very confusing. They're a metaphor. One thing means another, but with no apparent understanding from Scripture. So to summarize, one allegorical technique uses a word or concept to mean another word or concept, that's, which is a metaphor, but it's done in a puzzling way that has no clear meaning. Now we're going to look at the second literary device, which is a contradiction of Scripture. Now, I found in Quintilian, who's a first-century Latin author of rhetoric, describing both of the allegorical markers that Paul uses in Galatians 4, 21 to 5, 1. The one we have seen, which generally produces a series of strange metaphors, which is different from a regular metaphor because it introduces an element of obscurity. I have concluded that Paul uses a series of these startling metaphors after announcing this is allegorically speaking. The second type of allegory explains Quintilian, says something absolutely opposed to the meaning of the words. So the intended meaning is contrary to that suggested by the words. And this is what I'm finding Paul doing. The second type of allegory involves a puzzling contradiction and introduces an element of irony. Both types of allegory stimulate a startled reaction of surprise, and Paul uses both. As we have seen earlier, the original readers of Paul's letter would have been comprised of at least two distinct groups, so each would likely have responded in a different way. One was a group of non-Jewish Gentiles. They were new believers in Christ. And the other group was a faction of Jewish Christians, also new believers, they were advocating circumcision as a traditional right of entrance into the Jewish community and study of the law for continuing participation in the community of God's people. In other words, they were telling the Gentile believers that they had to become Jews. When Paul declares, I speak these things allegorically, both Gentile believers and Jewish Christians would likely have recognized this technique that says one thing but means another, 
They might have been familiar with Quintilian's description in his instruction on allegory, because Quintilian was living about the same time as Paul, which was used, and this strange allegory was used widely throughout the Roman Empire. The Makilta, which is that Jewish writing, suggests that this strange allegory was used by rabbinic teachers in Judea. However, each of these two groups, the Gentiles and the Jewish believers, would likely have responded in a different way. Our friend Quintilian notes the reaction that would likely have been the response of Paul's Jewish Christian rivals in the interfaith debate about circumcision and study of the law. So this debate was among Jews. Gentiles had nothing to do with it. It was among Jewish believers, you know, should they study the law or not? Explains Quintilian, the orator, the speaker, employs this allegorical contradiction to disguise bitter taunts and gentle words by way of wit. You may remember that sarcastic irony was an accepted method of instruction in the ancient world. Irony is to say one thing but mean another, kind of tongue-in-cheek. So the Jewish Christians probably heard Paul's abuse of language as ridicule, because that's a form of irony, ridicule directed against them. The Gentile Galatians, on the other hand, may have considered the information as a mere instructional device of allegory that would educate them regarding the relevance of Jewish rights to their belief in Christ and their subsequent walk in that faith. Since Paul is refuting what he calls a different gospel, which prompted circumcision and study of the law as the way to enter and participate in God's community, it is not surprising that Paul refers to two specific narratives. The Abraham story initiates the rite of circumcision, and the Exodus account tells of God's giving the law at Sinai. What is surprising is that Paul seems to contradict Scripture. Furthermore, he connects the themes of freedom and slavery with both the inheritance and with observance of the law, and those are going to become our markers to deeper meaning, the concept of freedom and slavery. Paul speaks now of four concepts. First concept is the covenant or the law. The second concept is slavery. The third concept is freedom in contrast to slavery. And the fourth concept, which is where we're really want to get to, but we're going to take a little time to get there, is heritage or inheritance. What will the children of Israel inherit? What will believers in, in Christ inherit? However, Paul's statements appear to contradict the Hebrew scriptures regarding these four concepts. We will find a final concluding declaration appearing in Galatians 5.1. There can be little doubt that Paul's remarks would have stimulated a reaction of surprise. So let's look at these four concepts more carefully. The first one is the covenant or the law. Paul says one woman representing a covenant is Hagar from Sinai. And then he says Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. What is the apparent contradiction? Well, Mount Sinai represents the covenant that God gave the children of Israel. The children of Israel are descendants of Sarah. They are not descended from Hagar. How about the second concept, which is slavery? Hagar is bearing children for slavery. 
Hagar corresponds to the present Jerusalem where the Jews live. What is the apparent contradiction? When God gave the covenant to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, the law was connected with their release from slavery in Egypt. Furthermore, associating Hagar the slave with Jerusalem connects those whom God freed from bondage with slavery. Now, the third concept is freedom in contrast to slavery. And Paul says the other woman, Sarah, who corresponds to the Jerusalem above, she, Sarah, who represents Jerusalem above, is free and she is our mother. Well, what's the apparent contradiction? By referring to Sarah as our mother, Paul identifies Gentiles with Sarah, but the Gentiles are not descended from Sarah. They're not Jews. They're descended from Hagar. And Paul identifies Gentiles as free. Also implied is the fact that Jews who were still connected to the now Jerusalem were the ones in slavery and bondage. Now, the fourth concept is heritage and inheritance. Paul first cites Isaiah 54.1. Then he declares, now you brethren like Isaac are children according to promise. What is the apparent contradiction? Only the free descendants of Sarah are connected with the inheritance prophesied in Isaiah 54.1, according to Paul. But this prophetic passage in the Hebrew Scriptures doesn't refer to, to Gentiles. It refers, in its context, to Israel. Then we get a concluding concept in Galatians 5.1, which has to do with slavery, freedom, study of the law, and the implied consequence. Paul says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, what makes this startling conclusion so strange? Religious practice of studying the law was considered an honorable commitment. I mean, what's wrong with studying the law? And this commitment was symbolized by submitting to a yoke of commitment. The yoke is the, you know, goes around the oxen and makes the, the oxen walk in a straight line. So the yoke is a symbol for a commitment to study the law. However, Paul uses another meaning of yoke that implies slavery. <laughs> you, know, you put the yoke around the oxen and he's a slave. What then would have been the reaction of the Galatians? In the concept of covenants, Paul contradicts the scriptural record of the descendants of Abraham According to Paul's explanation, Hagar, the slave woman, allegorically represents the covenant that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai. However, Israel descends from Sarah, and Hagar was Sarah's slave. Thus, Paul appears to forcibly invert the scriptural record. He makes it upside down. Furthermore, Paul heightens the irony by associating the Sinai law with Hagar and thus with slavery because Hagar was a slave. The very notion that God's covenant with Israel is allegorically associated with the slavery of Hagar and has the effect of generating a condition of slavery on those who follow the law would certainly have been startling to the Galatians, especially the Jewish believers. Paul's statements concerning freedom are equally surprising, though far more subtle. By using the word our in reference to Sarah as our mother, Paul is including Gentiles as descendants of Sarah. But they actually descended from Hagar because Hagar is not a Jew and they are not Jews. Furthermore, Paul associates anyone connected to the now Jerusalem with slavery. 
This would have been an outrage to Jews. Adding fuel to this fire, Paul introduces a clear reference to heritage and inheritance by referring to Isaiah 21, verses 10 and 12. Cast out the bondwoman, that's Hagar, and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Thus, Paul clusters four contradictory and startling concepts in Galatians 4, 24 to 28. These verses constitute the focus of Paul's allegorical argument. However, there remains one last surprising claim, which functions as a closure to the entire passage. In Galatians 5.1, Paul exhorts, Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Again, yoke was a word used in Jewish terminology as an honorable commitment to keep God's commandments as a loving response to God's great acts. Those urging the Gentile Galatians to be circumcised might well have been instructing them to take the yoke of the law in an honorable sense. Yet the word has another meaning. With an opposite image, the yoke used for work animals can symbolize a despised and forced burden like slavery, which is how Paul uses the word in Galatians 5.1. This one last startling statement would have thoroughly outraged those who were promoting the different gospel. Thus, Galatians 5.1 acts as a closure to the passage that began with Galatians 4.21, in which Paul clusters a barrage of startling statements in the verses 24 to 28. Paul generates these startling assertions with two literary devices, which are characteristic of an ancient method that would have produced a reaction of surprise, indignation, and even outrage by some readers. Paul refers to these statements as allegorically speaking. I suggest that the puzzling nature of these allegorical assertions leads the reader to the Hebrew scriptures to search for deeper aspects of such key words and concepts as freedom, slavery, the law, heritage, and the promised inheritance. And that is where we will go in the next podcast.